Hi, everybody, and uh, thanks for joining our weekly podcast. I'm Robin Lewis, founder and CEO of The Robin Report, which, by the way, I always like to mention this, it's much more than a daily report. It, it really is a knowledge platform from which we communicate thought leadership on uh, various strategic topics, um, yeah, through our daily reports, but also these podcasts and we do webinars and live events as well. So today, uh, along with uh, Shelly Cohan, my weekly podcast partner, <laughs> and by the way, she's also a professor at uh, Fashion Institute of Technology. So we welcome you all to our conversation on the topic of artificial intelligence-based tools for modeling. And it's really what is driving the spike in direct-to-consumer brands and also established companies who are growing uh, the DTC side of the business. And today we have a great guest, uh, Michael Challenger, CEO of Hauser Sync, uh, which is a, a DTC business that I that I think is a great solution for customers that uh, want to upgrade their sinks, faucets, <laughs> and probably a lot of other stuff as well. Uh, and yes, they're very focused. So, Michael, great to have you here. And I know our audience will appreciate getting uh, your views on DTC and uh, the importance of, you know, AI-based tools. Uh, to to drive the customer experience. So can you kind of start off by telling us a bit about Hauser and um, maybe some history on why and how uh, you started uh, the business? Yeah, happy to. Nice to uh, nice to meet everyone who's listening in and, and thank yep. you for the opportunity to be on here. Uh, so I'll give you a very brief history of myself and then a brief history of how I came into the business, a little bit about what we're trying to do, and then we can kind of go on from there. So um, I'm a lifer when it comes to e-commerce. I really have only ever worked in one industry, and that's e-commerce. I don't consider myself really a CEO, although I've come into that role. I've always introduce myself as, oh, I work in e-commerce, um, or sometimes if I want to be suitably vague, I work in tech, and then if people ask, I say I work in e-commerce. And then they, you know, sometimes will tell me that's not really tech. So I, I started my career in California. Um, I started working out of college for a small pure play e-commerce company that was called Improvement Direct at the time and would later be called Build.com. Um, it was a few million dollars in revenue at that point, um, and there were maybe a dozen of us or something like that. So I was one of the earliest hires. I came in to do data entry. I tried to quit after a year and go to law school. And I wound up um, being convinced by the founder to stick around. And I was there for um, the better part of seven years, during which we grew revenues to north of a billion dollars, which you know, when I first met Shelly, we were um, sharing a stage and we were having a prep call and somebody said, well, so what are the no-nos for D2C? And I said, oh, I've got that. Um, <laughs> the biggest no-no is not doing it. Right. And still brands are making this mistake for a variety of reasons like fear and and um, and also often just a lack of understanding of what goes into it and what can come out of it. But so typically D2C was last. Um, I would often take over marketing budgets along with that. 
Um, and so that was really my 30s was was doing that, um, typically remotely for for these consumer product brands. Um, toward the end of that, so when I turned 35, I ended up in my first uh, C-level role, which was technically a chief operating officer, but for all intents and purposes, was CEO of a small turnaround business run by a billionaire family office at the end of last year, at the end of 2022, to take over as CEO here. And I remember talking to the recruiter and saying kind of um, in confidence to them, they do know that I don't have any real CEO experience, right? And he said, oh, no, they don't care about that. They they know that the secret to this business is solving e-commerce, and they want your background for that. You've got enough C-level experience. You've got enough operating experience. They figure you can learn the rest, which I have been doing at um, a very breakneck pace for the last um, last year. But so that's how I came into Hauser. Um, I wish that I was a founding person. Um, it's a business that I've come and been um, recruited into to run and to sort of take to the next level. So um, this one, thankfully, um, mm. the marketing and brand strategy wasn't there. There was no direct consumer strategy. Again, back to mistake number one. Um, it was a business that sells a great sink, if anything, a sink that's underrated. Uh, we were just ranked Forbes number one um, sync. They surveyed all the major players, and uh, oh. we came out of the top. Wow! Congratulations! Yeah, we didn't. We we haven't That's even great. stood up our publisher, our publisher marketing strategy. Um, we've used that as an example to all of our suppliers uh, as to how marketing is so expensive. But the truth is that was organic. Um, Interesting. So the product is good. It just needs the the story behind it. And so um, I'm I'm here to tell that story. Not necessarily today. I'm here more today to tell the story of how to do direct consumer, how to use AI, and what's coming in AI. But um, that's a little bit about us. And so um, yeah, we're typically selling. Uh, the core of our product is a variety of kitchen sinks, um, mid-grade to sort of like middle to upper luxury um, in a variety of surfaces, ceramic, stainless steel, granite, et cetera. Um, and those, those things are traded across a couple of different brands, across all the major retailers, online and offline, as well as at housersync.com. I want to tell our audience that Hauser is spelled H-O-U-Z. E-R, and if you haven't checked it out, you should. But yes, so Michael and I uh, shared the stage at E-Tail Boston, which was a lot of fun. And I was immediately compelled with your insights on D2C and AI. And I actually had an epiphany during our panel. Yes, I was sitting there on stage and a huge light bulb went off in my head. And, you know, this rise of D2C and established brands moving more businesses to D2C is quite simple. They need data. They need data. Yeah. So when you want to optimize AI-based tools in the business, you need a mountain of data. And if you don't have that first-party data, you're left behind. So you also discussed the shift of the CEO role and who may land that role in the future, but we're going to talk about that later. Um, I know Robin has a few points yeah. about it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, a DTC is a huge focus now, um, you know, across many different industries. Uh, and also, it's both new direct-to-consumer brands, like, you know, digital natives, but also um, among the established brands, you know, like uh, Nike, Levi. Uh, and Levi, uh, who, by the way, started emphasizing the, the DTC channel years ago. Um, and in fact, in our podcast, Shelly, a few weeks ago, um, our topic was from wholesale to retail. Brands are trying to achieve a balance. And, and 
They really are. It's, we're still in the embryonic stages of all of this. Anyway, Shelly and I discussed um, how brands are trying to figure out the balance between wholesale retail and, and, and DT, D, DTC. So let me share for just a couple seconds here some really staggering numbers uh, about direct-to-consumer. Um, so the DTC sales in the U.S. were $77 billion back in 2019. And they're projecting to grow uh, to over $213 billion wow. by 2024, which is, you know, just a huge, huge jump. So, but what is interesting is that the established brands are keeping pace with the digital native brands. Um, you know, the established brands represented 74% of total e-com direct-to-consumer sales in 2019. And in 2024, established brands uh, will represent about 76% of total uh, direct-to-consumer to sales. So that's a, those are amazing numbers. And I think the other interesting but not surprising statistic is that <clears throat> digital native brands grew 40% in 2020 compared to the established brands at 32%. Yeah. If you fast forward to 2024, the growth rate is stabilizing. So both are growing around 16%. Which and, is incredible. Yeah. And you know, Rob, in the highest valued e-com brand in China as of October 2022. <laughs> well, it has to be Xi'an, right? That's right on. But if you think about it, the CEO that leads Xi'an yeah. comes from data analytics, digital, and he has a digital approach to the business using AI-based tools, which leads us to our conversation today. Before we jump into AI-based tools that can really change the business, revolutionize the business, let's start a discussion about brands who want to go to D2C. And Michael, you had mentioned earlier, you already gave us one tip about D2C, and that is don't not do it. But can you share with us some of the other bumps that you had along the way? Absolutely. Um, and I, I definitely am not sure I'm up to filling the shoes of the CEO of Xi'an, but I, I will take the flattering comparison. Um, and it, it is a great point that I hadn't really thought about um, in terms of uh, as an illustrative example of that sort of a trend. So so yes, my, my first big uh, mistake that I see people make is not doing it or being afraid of doing a direct-to-consumer strategy as an established brand. And to Robin's point, it's been an interesting journey of digitally native brands who are now trying to get in stores and store-based brands who have yeah. always been distributed through traditional channels adopting this new um, and high-growth sales channel. And you could look, I, I think, back to Shelley's data in 2020 and 2021 and pick out those brands that had made some hiring and investment into digital capability because they grew more than 2%. They might not have grown at 40%, but they were ready. And I think that is behind some of that sea change in um, you know, uh, C-suite people, especially um, into the CEO seat who come from that background because they're more conversant in that world. They're more able to swim in those rough seas that um, the digital uh, world has uh, has really taken over, right? Like there was a flood during 2020 and 2021 and 2022, and now we are everything is is 
in the water. And so if you didn't know how to swim, then <laughs> those brands drowned, right? And those yeah. businesses invested in digital leaders that um, that knew how to at least do the freestyle or the breaststroke. Um, you know, they stayed above water, and and the to your point, the digital native brands really flourish. So so that's that's point one is being so afraid of it that you don't do it. Um, yeah. Point two is is really gets into so the, if the first mistake is doing not doing it at all. The second mistake is more of a of doing it wrong, right? And so that um, talks about uh, not investing in your technology stack correctly or with some intention, right? I see so many people set out to their direct consumer. Um, strategy without really taking pausing for a week two weeks a month um to consult their um their their brain trusts and their their network of of advisors and make sure that they're building their their tech stack for scale yeah. right we're yeah. using the right platform is shopify good for our business should we be using big commerce we chose big commerce after a long rfp and i've always been a shopify fan up to this point um you may be too big for either right you might be a company that needs to build a custom headless platform or use one of the existing um you know shopify has their own custom headless built uh big commerce is working on something similar build.com has moved to salesforce commerce cloud right if you're a big enterprise company um having been on salesforce commerce cloud i struggle to recommend it to people unless you have endless resources which they do um, but so you need to think through at the top level, what is your, mm -hmm. your platform, but then you need to go much deeper than that, right? Are we putting in a good system of record for uh, product information management, or are we going to have, um, you know, a million dollar Salesforce installation and then run all of our product information from an Excel sheet? Cause I've seen lots of brands try to do that. And so <laughs> setting up that technology yeah. stack incorrectly, um, can, can lead to lots and lots of problems especially as you start to try and bolt on more complex pieces to that, right? Shelly made an amazing point um, from, and this was something that I had never thought about either um, until that epiphany moment on the stage that we shared, is we were talking about what's the value of direct consumer, right? To this this audience in, in ETL Boston. And um, I, I think you could probably make this point number three, right? Which is, um, don't do direct consumer just because it's an incredibly high margin business. Yeah. Don't do it just because it's a way, um, you know, I, I view it and badge it, especially to boards and owners and things like that. It's a way to invest in growth marketing, but actually get a return on that investment. So traditionally your branding with a capital B marketing was, you know, sort of like a Jesus take the wheel type of situation where you hand your money over to, um, your, um, connected TV or even your linear TV partner, and they run a bunch of you know spots. The Super Bowl ad, right, is the um, the premier right. example of traditional mm -hmm. branding. And you had no real like idea. You knew what sort of uh, like audience impressions, things like that, you were getting, but you didn't know if it was driving sales. With a direct consumer strategy, you can actually monetize your brand yep. investment and get an ROI for it while still creating absurd high, absurdly high numbers of impressions. So these are important points, but then the next level thing in terms of now the value of AI, obviously it goes without saying, but it's worth saying that you, you get to own your customer data and then having that strategy is so important. We had a debate on the stage when I was up with Shelly, just talking through, um, actually it might've been in the session I spoke of the day before, but someone asked, how do I educate my company around D2C? We're struggling to allocate our advertising budget because we've got D2C and we've got an Amazon business and the Amazon team wants all the budget. Um, so how do we solve for that? And I said, well, you have to think about your lifetime value. 
if you're right. paying Amazon um, for that one-off click, you don't own anything, right? Amazon owns that data. You're creating a sale at probably a pretty small um, contribution profit or, or EBITDA, um, but you're not actually growing your lifetime value. If you're investing in that direct consumer, you now own that customer's data. You have built a relationship, which is, by the way, another mistake I see people make is forgetting that you're building a relationship for your brand. So if you right. if you yep. get a best-in-class tech stack, but you don't put something like a Zendesk Gorgeous that's deeply integrated to um, provide that Amazon-like shopping experience, and your customers have to call you and say, where's my stuff? When's it going to get here? Then they can develop a bad taste, especially if you have a luxury brand. I've slowed our ad investment massively compared to what the team wants to do until I can make absolutely sure that every single order that goes out is a super white glove experience. Like we still literally, because I'm not happy with the automation, we have someone who manually is working on sticking in, you know, a thank you letter and basic materials into the box in a warehouse because, and this will get automated at scale, but I wanted to make sure that it's that warm, fuzzy experience. But as a brand, yeah. if you are if you're a luxury product and you don't do that, you're creating a bad brand. So it's it's very much a double-edged sword, which brings me to the value of data as Shelly prompted. So yeah, I think um, if you if you want a reason to do it that isn't super high margin and you want a reason to do it, and that's not one of the things I've said so far, back to that value of owning your customer data, even like a buy with Prime um, where Amazon will actually send you customers um, from the, the greater internet, they'll support you in converting your, your end customer using their brand, but you still get to own your customer data, even in that and, situation. And so, yeah, go ahead. I, th I think that the branding is important, right? Uh, yeah, and I wanted to jump in there, yeah, as well. But go ahead, Shelly. No, no, you go. Well, I, I think to maybe condense probably the most important thing you said for our audience is that, you know, D to C, is not something that should be hobbled together. And brands, <laughs> either digitally native brands or established brands, really have to understand that you do not just put up a website or develop an app with uh, without really making sure it follows through the brand ethos, to, to Shelley's point, the one that you, you, you know, uh, talked about very strongly. So, you know, throughout the pandemic, by the way, and over the last three years, many brands just started adding different technologies and platforms, you know, to get through the, the the storm. But now we need to take a step back and better understand how to build a proper infrastructure to meet, you know, the high expectations of consumers and particularly uh, around the brand. Definitely. I mean, I think consumers are really looking more to do purchasing with direct-to-consumer brands worldwide. So in 2022, 64% of consumers regularly make direct-to-consumer purchases compared to 49% back in 2019. And if you look at the share of customers who are ordering from D2C brands worldwide by generation, of course, Gen Z leading the pack, 74% are buying mm. direct-to-consumer followed by millennials at 62. And boomers, of course, only order about 27% of the time direct from the brand. 
So, Michael, just going back to what Robin said and what you had kind of hinted to, what can be said about all these technologies that have kind of been just thrown into the marketplace since 2020? Do do we need to take a step back and do a refresh? I think most organizations probably do. And depending on the type of organization, bigger ones also make this error of tripping into something like this, right? You have somebody who pushes it from a lower level, but there's never that like uh, C-suite, like leadership team alignment uh, behind, okay, this is the strategy we need to pursue, that we want to pursue, that we have goals set for, a budget aligned behind. Um, I, I advised in the the other session that I was giving, I said, you know, basically, here's my framework for getting anything done on a big organization, but especially around direct to consumer. And the first step is is doing your research, right? It's it's understanding. The second step is internal alignment, right? And often that doesn't happen. And yes, I think there's there's a um, a lot of value in taking stock of are we on the right platform? Do we have our pricing strategy locked in, right? Or are we with our direct consumer approach um, going out and jeopardizing um, our our wholesale and retail relationships because we're selling under uh, like our map price. Do we even have a map price and a set of tools for monitoring pricing and enforcing that? Um, I think the the other thing going back to the statistics, the statistics that you were sharing, Shelley, because I presented at a different conference about direct consumer and um, specifically brands reaching these younger consumers. Not only do the younger consumers want to buy directly from the brand, but they also want to buy from brands that are taking a stance on environmental issues, social issues, things like that. And guess what? What is one of the best ways to tell that story in a rich format um, that you are never going to get the pulpit to speak from on a retail website like an Amazon or something like that? It's having a direct consumer site. If you've got your own Shopify, BigCommerce, or other site, and you have lured this customer in with your top of funnel advertising in connected TV or print media or radio, (laughs) podcast, doesn't matter, but you get them in, and now you can tell your story to this consumer and engage them with a sustainability story, a social change story, a story of a brand that gives a crap, guess what? They're a lot more likely not just to purchase, but now to think of you um, as they're recommending you to their friends, their family. Our version of that is is we have a buy it for life message, right? So we want people to buy one sink for their rest of their mm-hmm. uh, their home's life, um, yeah. and we're working more and more with our factories to also have the products be produced in a very sustainable manner. Um, we're introducing a granite sink that's made of fully recycled material, etc. So it's a chance for us to tell that story too in a format we'd never be able to. I also want to because I know we have this overarching theme of AI, Robin. Go back to you were talking about brands that don't think through um, really dialing in that customer experience. And I think um, broadly, my view on AI in e-commerce is it's very much still in its its infancy as far as this new new generative AI generation. Oh, wait, Michael, Michael, we're going to get to that in a second. We got to tackle one more topic. Well, I I just want to make a real quick comment. All this stuff you're talking about, Michael, is, you know, you look at our industry today and all the legacy retailers out there and the big ones, the Macy's and so forth and so on. um, You know, all of the stuff you're talking about is who in the C-suite knows any of this or knows how to do it. It, It's it's and you're right. It's like we're in the embryonic stages. So 
um, <laughs> this new wave of retail. The problem starts from the top. Who's going to yes. lead these companies, I, I, Michael? I mean, what you just said sounds to many people like a foreign language. Everything you just kind of. Yeah. Who, who's going to lead these companies going forward? What does this new CEO look like? Where are they coming from? Yeah, so I, I think you go back for the last several decades. CEOs came from a very standardized stock that consisted mostly of CFOs and COOs, right? Yeah. Board yeah. ownership groups would always tap this sort of old faithful, right? These were people who knew the FPNA side of things. These people who had been operators, um, who had good operating shops, they controlled the flow of goods and money in an efficient manner, right? They yep. ran lean businesses that um, turned inventory at um, you know strong uh, rates of turn that um, controlled their um, their fixed and their variable costs efficiently, um, and that's always not always, but um, in many 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 cases, that's been where the CEO came from. And yeah. I personally, of course, have seen that change. I've also seen more and more in my my network this start to change. So um, a good friend, Charlie Cole, um, was the chief digital officer at Toomey Bags, um, an amazing um, luxury brand, was tapped by a private equity group to come in and be CEO of FTD, um, a billion plus dollar uh, flower retailer. This happened before the pandemic. Um, the, they they hired him basically the day everything shut down, um, and so they're a great example of a, a um a business early adopting this trend that we're seeing now. And I think that trend is these boards and these owners are going as they did with FTD. Um, they're looking at the results the business is putting out, and they're saying we're not happy with these. <laughs> to be fair, boards and owners, especially you know bigger private equity groups and things like that, can be a little myopic because they're looking at. Uh, 100 balance sheets and they're saying, okay, I just want to see these graphs going up and to the right. And what, of course, happened during the 2020 um, right, period through now, yeah. a lot of graphs, especially the graphs of these businesses that hadn't made the investment in digital, because to your guy's point, they didn't understand it. It was a foreign language to them. Those graphs didn't go up and to the right. And these boards looked at the graphs of digitally native brands or digitally savvy traditional brands, established brands. And they were going up and to the right. So that's one thing is they saw that. You also had these businesses that booked, even if they weren't digitally savvy, unbelievable results during 2021, 2022, these sort of resurgence years, right? Yeah. These were swing back years that realistically were probably never going to be comparable for a lot of businesses. But that doesn't matter right. because boards still expect you to comp. They say, well, this is what you did last year. And so you had this whole generation of embattled CEOs, people who hadn't been able to learn the new tricks, that hadn't been able to master the complexities of this incredibly, um, I mean, it's a full-time job. You could just go to conferences like Etail Boston every week and still mm -hmm. not keep up with the pace of change. So there's no knock on these people who've been CEOs for 10, 20, 30 years that most of them haven't been able to evolve and adapt. But, right. Um, but, but they're not... Yeah, let me just give you another example, because I have a great example yeah. of an established brand. Oh, yeah. And, you know, they're doing well, but they are intentionally going digital first. So Crate and Barrel just had a big announcement this past week. They are investing a multi-year investment doubling on capital and talent and technology. They're calling it Bring It Home. And the goal is to deliver this highly personalized customer experience through a digitally first operating model, 
with a modern view of building out the company's future. And, you know, get this, they plan to not only double the capital investment, but they're going to hire over 200 people in the technology team. And I sat down, I had an exclusive interview with the CEO, uh, Janet Hayes, who I just love. And uh, so here's something that's really interesting. So Crate and Barrel has been around for 60 years. And now today, they're first, now they're thinking about digital first. And I don't mean today, they've been thinking about it since she's, you know, kind of been the CEO of the company. Um, but here's a crazy thing, Michael, I want to share with you. And Robin, you'll find this super fascinating. This is a big change for established brands. Mm -hmm. They are moving CRM, so customer relationship management, CRM, and business intelligence functions will now sit under the technology team, the CTO. So now you have the chief technology officer, that's Jason Booth. He came from uh, Nike, head guy at technology for Nike. So now you have CRM and you have business intelligence sitting underneath the CTO. So the point is that more companies are leaning into data and analytics. The role of the CTO has become more prominent. Um, and also, um, just want to move on to our last topic, because I know we're running out of time. And I know you're dying to talk about it, My Michael, is this, you know, what's the need for brands to further investments in this AI based modeling uh, to actually drive business? Yeah, and, and I think that's the, the crate and barrel example is a great one. I, I was going to say you, you, you both teed this up in your own way, right? So Shelly, you talked about Look, if you are a D2C or non-D2C brand, a brand that wants to be around, that doesn't want to be sticking its head in the sand, then you need to be thinking about your long-term generative AI strategy, your your LLM strategy, your, your learning language model, or your language learning model. Um, and if you're starting to think about that, you need to think about how you're going to have a very robust pool of data to train your model on, right? Um, these models are evolving at an incredible breakneck pace, but they're still very much in their infancy. But one thing that you can be certain of is they will need, the only consistent thing that will still be true a year from now is they will need a lot of data to learn from, right? So whether you're trying to train your model to be um, your first Vanguard point of contact, if somebody chats into your website or emails your customer service or calls into your call center and talks to <clears throat> Um, you know, a bot that has been trained on every conversation your customer service people have ever had, doesn't matter, you're going to need that pool of data, right? Yeah. Or if you're training a, um, you know, an AI marketing assistant to come in, um, you're going to want all of the data. And that's a little easier to get because you typically have that stored within your data lake if you have one, or even just going back in your Google um, ads history, etc. But so having that that data is very important. And then Robin, you also teed this up nicely by talking about the the brand experience side of things, right? As I've mentioned, yeah. your D2C experience is your brand reputation, right? So if you have a yeah. crappy one, then you can hurt your brand. Um, if you do D2C um, without, as Crate and Barrel did, clearly getting that um, consensus and alignment across the whole organization, and I'm sure upward to the board as well, um, getting your ducks in a row so everyone's marching the same beat. So from that yeah. standpoint of the brand reputation side, I think um, where AI is making that initial um, real dent in a robust way from a technology standpoint is 
on the the customer experience side, right? Being able to have your um, your Zendesk chat or something like that um, tap into um, a learn language learning model like a, a ChatGPT style um, bot. So I think that's kind of like if you look at the timeline of of AI, uh, where we were six months ago is everyone was talking about it. Very few people were really using it in a substantive or meaningful way. Like you saw people using ChatGPT. Um, to do internal things like, you know, I've used it to help write performance yeah. reviews or, um, you know, it wrote a an offer letter to a new head of uh, sales that we just hired. Um, I've seen people use it to populate, um, scan through all their competitors' reviews and pull out all the reasons that people gave them, you know, negative ratings and then insert those into their reviews. But these are manual things. They're not That's scalable. That's crazy. So, yeah. It, 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 even that is cool and crazy, but it's still there's a human in the loop where it'll start to get crazy, which is kind of where we're at now is the tech companies that are able to insert. Um, you can take like Microsoft Azure, which is their cloud based computing thing, has um, basically a module. Think of it like Windows or something like that. That's packaged all the different AI tools together. Right. You can as as a user, you can go out and tap into that. So Zendesk, Gorgeous, all these, um, you know, CRM um, tech companies, they've had that already. So that's where we're at now is you're seeing the companies who can easily implement these AI, um, like new gen, um, gen AI tools um, are implementing that. But where we're going in the next year is a really exciting thing because you're going to see companies that have a harder journey. Like, for example, um, your CSEs, like a channel advisor and and the like, Um they'll be able to to tap in and um, use use generative AI to uh, rewrite all your product titles that you're sending out to, to search engines while simultaneously overlaying an AI generated um, like version of your product image. They might generate a hundred different versions of that and a hundred different versions of the copy completely automatically using generative AI and test them for you out in the market where you have millions of impressions and come back with one winner, which you then push out to every retail website, right? That's, and that's, that's crazy. <laughs> you wait, know what? Wait, 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 I'm going to jump in here. If you, yeah. you know, Harvard ought, <laughs> Harvard ought to pay you a lot of money to come up there and, and have an entire course on AI. And they, wouldn't, they wouldn't have to pay me. I'd love to do it. That would be fun. <laughs> no, I mean, the, the stuff that you're putting forward here, and very quickly, I mean, it's it's astonishing. The question is, who in the heck out there? Who's going to run? Who's going to run this stuff? I think the great barrel example is a great example of maybe a poster child for other companies to explore these areas with people who know what they're doing. Um, yes. So I think the, the the top job for the legacy CEO people and C level people is to really find the more, more or less young people who understand what needs to be done in this area, because you're right, we're in the embryonic stage, right? Robin, so, so. should we, well, I think we're out of time, Rob. Do you want to wrap up? Do you have any closing comments before we uh, wrap yeah, up? Yeah, just, just I, from, all I've been, <clears throat> from all I've been hearing um, uh, from, from Michael's very um, amazing stuff. Um, I'd like to make an observation of, of common sense, uh, really, right? We all know that as the crow flies, right, means, we all know what that means, or another way of putting it is the shortest distance between point A to point B. 
is a direct line. So both of those have to do with speed. And D to C is simply the same thing. There are no barriers between the product that the consumer wants and where, where they're located. And even though experience has got to be a big part of uh, physical store shopping, as Shelley said, not so important for experience consumers expect from D to C. Anyway, that's just kind of a common sense view of all of this. So, Michael, um, really, thanks so, so much. I mean, our audience has had to gain an incredible education here. I, I think, Mike, yeah, I think, Mike, what's going to happen is people are going to have to re-listen to the podcast to get caught up on everything that you said. I know. And we're going to have to have you back because... You know, it's fantastic. So thank you so much. And for our listeners, you can find more of our podcast on Apple, Spotify, Buzzsprout, and the RobinReport.com. Follow us on social media, link in with us for the latest thoughts about the industry. And again, Michael, you are awesome. Thank you. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you. (laughs) Hopefully next time I won't be in Bangkok on a few hours of sleep in, in three days. Although that force to slow down, I I talked a little more slowly than I normally would. So uh, (laughs) maybe it was a good thing. That's great. I love it. Thank you so much again. And I want to thank our audience for joining us today. And as I've said every week, um, if all of anybody in the audience uh, has a topic they'd like Shelly and I to cover, uh, just send me an email at robin at the robinreport.com. And thank everybody again for joining us. And Michael, thank you so much.